We are finishing our Romans series. And for those that haven't been a part of it, we've been doing Romans since March? Something like that. And we've been doing it backwards. And we've been doing it, we started with 12 to 16, chapter 12 to 16, then it was uh, 8 to 11, and I guess it was 1 to 7, something like that. And the scripture we started with is the one I want to end with. And that is Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I want you to leave that up there for a while, Doug. This is the heart of what Paul's trying to express to them. He's trying to express to this church in Rome, this Christian church, that they're being called to something deeper. They're being called to present themselves as a living sacrifice, to to not just say, I want to share with you what I believe. It's to offer yourselves in worship to God in impacting the world around you. Being able to testify that because of God's mercy, we have freedom. Throughout this passage, we talk about freedom from sin. But the challenge they were having was that they weren't doing the first part of being transformed, or of of, uh, offering their bodies a living sacrifice but they become conformed to the patterns of the world. And this church has gone through division, where you've got Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians fighting amongst themselves. I want to give you some historical background around this. Paul wrote this letter in 55 to 57 AD. In 49 AD, All the Jews were kicked out of Rome. They were expelled from Rome. The Jews and the Jewish Christians, they were all kicked out. In looking at uh, Joseph Fitzmaier, who wrote a book uh, on Romans, it says he claims that both the Jews and Jewish Christians were expelled because of their infighting. That they were troublemakers. That they were causing disruption within the Roman city. Can you turn it down? Just Can someone turn it down just a touch? Because um, I'm afraid I'm going to yell and then freak everyone out. They were expelled because of infighting. And so Claudius kicks them out. In AD, uh, uh, 54 AD, the Emperor Nero takes over as Claudius died. And then there was a fire in uh, 64 AD in Rome. And actually, sorry, 
Nero actually brought them back, the Jews, back into Rome. They were allowed to come back in, but then they had the fire where Nero played his fiddle during the fire. But after that, Christians were persecuted. So Paul wrote this letter at 55 to 57 AD, and the fire took place in 64, and they went into a time of persecution. When those Jews came back, those Jewish people, the Jewish Christians, came back in 54, conflict arose again between the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians. If you were to look at it, you would probably say the troublemakers in this are the Jewish Christians. Because that's where they seem to be at the heart of these these infighting and disagreements. I look at it and I wonder, how were these Christians viewed in Rome? Is this a good thing? That they would be fighting for what they believe is right. That they would dispel those that don't agree with them. They would want to say, you're not really one of us. Or they'd be angry if they think that someone's getting more than they are. It kind of looks similar to some of the things we're seeing. Throughout this book, Romans, it presents the gospel all the time. The whole time, is that Paul's expressing the gospel. And what we see in the book, we see that the gospel in Romans in chapter 1 to 4 reveals God's righteousness. In 5 to 8, it crea- it, uh, the, the, the gospel creates a new humanity. The gospel fulfills God's promise to Israel in chapter 9 to 11. And the gospel unifies the church. This was a letter I, we've told you before was, was uh, brought to the, the Roman church by a woman named Phoebe. And she probably read the letter to them. As we've been looking at this letter, I wonder how the, Jew, how the, the, the Jews, uh, the Jewish Christians responded, how the Gentile Christians responded to the letter. Because I know that sometimes when we get these kind of letters presented to us, where it's kind of harsh, we could take it out on the messenger. I would be so fearful for Phoebe that somehow someone would say, you changed those words. You have no authority to speak those words. We don't have to listen to you. Paul's the guy we want to listen to. If we hear it from Paul, then we'll believe it. Can you hear all that stuff? Is we dismiss something not because it's not true, it's because I don't want to believe it. I don't want to hear it. <clears throat> I wonder if this was beneficial. Did the church come together and everyone hugged and we had potlucks every week and it was all great? The view of the Christian, particularly the Jewish Christians, I would think that the city would say, 
these people are nothing but trouble. What if people look at the church and say, you guys are troublemakers? Not in a good way. <clears throat> Scott McKnight had this quote in his book, Reading Romans Backwards. He said, Paul's message is that the strong need to tolerate the weak. The strong he actually refers to as the Gentile Christians, and the weak are the Jewish Christians which wouldn't be helpful either <laughs> for the Jewish Christians to hear that they're the weak. The weak's conscience and that the weak need to know that the Torah observance is not the way to achieve Christiformity. Christiformity is that place of transforming to be more like Christ. That's what's supposed to take place, to be more like Christ. And I think sometimes... What you get is a battle to say, you need to be like me. You have to be like me. We figured it out. Anyone that thinks differently than we do are wrong. And therefore, if they're wrong, I'm just going to say, they're just evil. There's a song, uh, there's an artist, I, I've shared about him before, Steve Taylor, one of the first alternative music Christian artists. And his first album was called I Want to Be a Clone. Picture of him running up the aisle uh, of a church with this funky tie and looking different, and everyone in the pews are just these plastic characters that all look the same. And he was expressing <clears throat> this place where the church, why do we fight for cloneliness? He said, cloneliness as next to godliness, right? Part of the lyrics. We want everyone to be like us instead of being like Christ. Scott McKnight, we talked about this earlier. He talks about living theology. The challenge for this church was to be the living theology of God. Which means that people can learn about God by watching Christians. That's what we should have, is a living theology that people wouldn't have to just study. They could watch us. How we respond because we're like Christ. How's that going? <laughs> this is what I see when I read, when I read through Romans, is that I was challenged on a personal level, and I had a hope for us as a church for something different than what we seem to be walking into in this world. Uh, there's uh, a book that we quoted way back a couple other, a few years ago, Shannon and I, and it's a book called The Gospel-Centered Discipleship by Jonathan Dodson. This is what Jonathan Dodson said. He said, the gospel converts disciples three times. First to Christ, then to the church, the community, then to the mission. Without all three conversions, the disciple is incomplete. Sadly, we have devolved from being Christ-centered communities 
to loose collections of spiritually-minded individuals. What happens when you read that? Do we go to the place of saying, oh, I hate when people are like that, or do we say, that's me? Because this is what the church was going through, is that they're getting this letter that was pretty much saying to them, this is you. Remember the, t- the subtitle for this? Don't be so smug. We can get very arrogant around what we think is truth or what we believe that everyone sh- should believe as well. And yet, we are not the living theology. This is the other quote that he had. Interestingly, interestingly, when the church embraces the second conversion of community, very often the third conversion follows. A Jesus-centered community is an attractive community, a community that encourages, forgives, serves, and loves. When the church is rooted in a whole gospel, her growth is both inward and outward, in strength and in height, in community and in mission. That last part, where it starts a Jesus-centered community, is... I think people are struggling to see that's what it looks like. Because I don't think all the time that we've been converted to what it means to be the church, therefore what it means to be in mission. I I will confess, during this last couple of weeks, watching what's going on in the States, and this isn't me going, look to him bad, it's me looking at fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and seeing them doing the things that don't show me that they are being transformed in the person of Christ. Is that they've got, they're mean-spirited, they've been violent in their language and actions toward fellow believers and also non-believers. When Paul Pelosi was attacked, Nancy Pelosi's husband, in his home in San Francisco. He was attacked by a man who obviously has lost it, like he's, there's something mentally wrong with him. But he wanted to get her. And he ends up attacking Paul Pelosi, ties him up, and hits him with a hammer couple of times. He ends up in surgery, brain surgery. He's going to recover, but it's a slow recovery. Within days, those that are on the other side of the aisle politically didn't respond, a number of them didn't respond by saying, this is tragic. This should never happen. They responded in bizarre ways of accusing people of saying it wasn't that bad, or they made up stories as well about Paul Pelosi's character. And they mocked and made jokes about it within 24 hours. I wasn't struggling so much with the words that they were saying. I was struggling with the people that were saying it that say, I'm a Christian. 
They believe that somehow Christ is with them on this. And we're losing something of the graciousness, the peacefulness, the loving personalities that we're supposed to represent in living out our theology. And I'm not sure what's going to happen in this week. But I'm praying that the Lord is Lord over his people. Do you remember when I said that even with the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians, with the Jewish Christians as they were struggling with the law and whether the law is how you become a true follower of Christ, by obeying all the rules. As they were doing that and saying that about the Gentile Christians, they were also breaking their own laws. And the response is, Paul was expressing his anger towards them more than towards the Gentile Christians. Because they should know better. I feel like there's a sense that I'm outraged at Christians who are doing these things because they should know better if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. It seems like today's fights, we're fighting for religious rights. We're tying our religious rights to our politics. Or they need to be right all the time. And again, not being those people of grace, peace, and love. One of the words that I learned, or one of the two words that kept coming to mind, and I watched my parents walk it out, is a concept of mutual respect. Mutual respect is about everybody being valued for who they are and what they bring to the table. It involves seeing people's unique contributions, recognizing understanding differences, and celebrating diversity, but also capitalizing on common ground. And common ground is that shared interests, beliefs, or opinions between two people or groups who disagree about most other subjects. Do we even know how to offer mutual respect when someone disagrees with me, harshly. In a conversation, can I find common ground? Can I believe that they bring something to the table? Because what I'm seeing is someone declaring that if you don't believe what I believe, you bring nothing to the table. Paul was dealing with this kind of divide in this church. Because the Jewish Christians were not just, I disagree with my fellow brothers and sisters. They were troublemakers. They were the ones that were demanding their rights and afraid that, that the, the Gentile Christians were going to get more than they get. And yet, it promises that the, the, the Jewish Christians were going to get what they were promised. But were you willing to let someone else receive the same thing? Do we know how to engage a world? Hi there. Do we know how to engage with the world without demanding that I get my voice heard and demanding that I want it to be the way I want it to be? One of the things I heard this week was the desire within this, the political realm is that the Christians 
or the more conservative are looking to make the entire country Christian. I confess I'm terrified by that because I don't think Christian means the same to some as it does to, to Jesus. It sounds like power. It sounds like control. It sounds like it's rooted in fear. And what Paul's trying to express is it's supposed to be rooted in love, reconciliation, coming together, and seeing value in the person that disagrees with you. There's a story uh, of Paul in Acts 17. And it's Paul coming to Athens and engaging with the people to share, wanting to have a conversation about what he believed. And he sees all the different gods around Athens. And he sees one that says, to the unknown God. It was fascinating to watch how Paul takes that and says, can I tell you about the unknown God? Let me tell you about him. The unknown God is the one who made the world and everything. He's Lord over heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples. And he has no needs to be served. It says that he gives life and breath into everything. He satisfies every need. And then he says, from one man, he created all the nations. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall. And he determined their boundaries. This man, his purpose was for the nations to seek after God. Perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of you, of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of our own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in early times. But now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. I want you to think about what he said there. He spoke about the resurrection of the dead. They laughed at him. They said, we want to hear more about this later. And Paul ended the discussion and left. Do you know what's interesting about that? That unknown God, I don't think that's what they thought it was. I think he took the opportunity to say, there's an unknown God here, let me tell you who it is. He creatively took a situation and found common ground to say, this is one of your gods. Let me talk about him. Do you know what else he didn't do? He never mentions Jesus' name. I want you to think about that. 
He does not mention Jesus' name. He only mentions a man that was raised from the dead. Is there wisdom in that? To be able to say, let me tell you about my God. To a place where you encourage them to have a conversation. Because they weren't ready to hear it. And so he wasn't going to release the thing. But he's going to encourage conversation. But he's not going to go after you. Because he had a respect for those people and how they believed. They had multiple gods. He just joined in. In, in India, I met a pastor in India where they were seeing, and I've shared this before, but they were, they were seeing an increase in the Christian church by 8,000 a month. One of the things you can't do there in India is you cannot proselytize the Christian faith. And the way that they would do this is they would meet people and they would add our God to their list of gods. They would say, I'd like to know more about Jesus. I'd like to put him in with the rest of my gods. They could never say, hey, there's only one God. That's it. But what God would do in the midst of it is he would, as they learned about Christ, they would change, they would be transformed. And they would say, why do I need all these other gods if I have Jesus? And they could get rid of those other gods. But the church couldn't say, we're the one and only. Do you know how arrogant we are? I have people that, even when they heard that story, they were angry, going, oh, no one tells me that I can't testify to Jesus Christ. I get to do that. It's my right. Instead of saying, humbly, how would you do that for someone? That's not where you're at. When someone shows up and says, I believe in the authority of Scripture, and the other person says, I don't, well, then we're done. People don't believe in the authority of Scripture in the world around us, so we can't lead with that. And I've seen Christians that lead with it and say, this is my Scripture. You need to listen to me. Instead of saying, why don't we listen to them? That's what Paul did. He spent time going, how can I share God in the context of them as the, as in Athens? I've seen so many missionaries, I've seen so many uh, Christian leaders do creative things. You know, those that minister to the First Nations people. Years ago, I remember Jean de Brébeuf wrote that, that hymn, the, the, the Huron Carol, and used some of the names that they used to write a song of Jesus Christ. But people were angry because it has to be the way that I said it. Romans was meant to challenge. It's probably one of the best books to deal with the gospel but it challenges the church to change how smug you are about what you believe. 
I'm praying for this week and this election and even how other people are responding in the world to this is that they don't get sucked in to some of the smugness that I'm hearing expressed. And I want to hear about the person of Christ. More than that, I want to see the person of Christ in those that say, I follow Jesus Christ. My prayer for each one of us is that there would be this Christiformity that takes place in all our lives. That we start to see where we haven't declared Christ as Lord. 